0: Hey, everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell.
1: And I'm Dr. Neff.
0: And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And Thanks for listening.
1: As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information.
0: So Megan and I are very excited to introduce our little mini-series within a series about interviewing different neurotypes and within the neurodivergent and neurodiversity communities. Um we want to just put a big, 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 big disclaimer out there that we understand that by interviewing one person per neurotype, there are lots of different perspectives, different experiences. One person does not speak for the entirety of a neurotype, and we just want to really make that clear. Um, but we are really excited today for our guest and our interview with our Ask an ADHDer, and I'm going to turn it over to Megan.
1: Um, yeah. So I likewise am really excited for this series. And I think it's kind of a playful series. And I'm glad you mentioned the disclaimer of, of course, we're not gonna nail down all experiences in one interview per narrative, neurotype or however many we have. But I cannot think of a better person to be kind of getting us started on this process than Dr. Donna Henderson. Um, I am just gonna gush over you for a minute, Dr. Donna Henderson. (laughs) I hope that's okay with you. I don't like when people gush over me. I hope you have more tolerance for it. I've mixed
2: feelings about it.
1: <laughs> okay, well, we can process that. I mean, <laughs> um, I am such a fan of your work, as you know. Um, Dr. Donna Henderson has done a lot um, in, a, I would say, advancing the conversation around non-stereotypical autism. Um, she and her co-authors just released two books this summer, um, Is This Autism?, which is a green book. And then the second one, Clinician's
2: Guide, So they're both called, is this autism? And the subtitle is different. The The first one, the subtitle of the first one is a guide for clinicians and everyone else. And the second one is a companion guide for diagnosing.
1: Got it. So if you're a clinician, check out the blue book. And if you're everyone else, check out the green book. Am I oversimplifying? I'm sure. A little
2: bit because we feel really strong. We wrote them as one book, and we were very yeah. upset when they had to be divided into two Aww. books. But you know, I went way over my word limit. Um, and understandably, it's a complex topic. It is, and um, we really want clinicians to start with the first book because oh, you okay. The first book tells you kind of what to look for, and the second yes. book tells you how to look for it. And if you don't know what to look for, it doesn't matter if you know how to love use that. tests and rating scales. I love and that. that. Yeah.
1: Okay. I'm actually so glad, like that was just a divergent trail based on the introduction, but I'm actually really glad we had that conversation because I've been wondering how to recommend your books. And I I remember I've read the green one, not the blue one yet. Um, And I remember thinking like, this is so much helpful information for a clinician in training. I want all training programs to have your book. Um, So yes, one of the reasons I love your book and I love you is because... I think you're putting, so Rootlish just published it. This is a really academic, solid publisher. I think it's really hard for a medical provider to look at the case you put forward and say, this is rubbish. Um, and so that is one of the reasons I'm such a fan of your book is you're taking what is, I would say, known in the autistic community and really putting kind of a research backbone to it. Um, to where it's going to be hard for the field to um, continue to depend on stereotypical ideas around autism?
2: Yeah, and that came from it's the way I structure my reports. I literally use the DSM diagnostic criteria, and people have all kinds of feelings about them. But I think if you actually understand the scope mm-hmm. of them and what they really mean, then they do make sense and, and they can be very clinically useful. And so when I write a report for somebody who is autistic and has been misunderstood over and over and over again by their healthcare professionals and everyone else, I literally write how they meet each diagnostic criteria because I want to arm them with that Mm -hmm. document so Mm -hmm. a future healthcare professional can't say, well, I don't think you're autistic because they have the proof, you know? Yeah,
1: well, and now you've done that for a wide audience, which is why this is so valuable. Um, Okay. I'm bringing myself back on track. So uh, other, other than these fantastic books, like he, I also, I've been at your trainings. I've heard your trainings. I've posted some of your trainings around PDA, um, around autism and girls. There's, a, I know there's a podcast you're on that has like gone viral where you walk through the DSM criteria for, for girls. Um, so you're well known in this field as an expert on autism. So you being on our podcast today is a little bit different because we asked you to come on to speak from your personal experience as an ADHDer. I think it's so interesting here. You are at the forefront, I would say, of the clinical research around autism, um, and you're an adhd which you talk less about. I haven't heard you talk about it here and there, but I haven't heard you talk about it in depth. So first, I'm just curious, what is it like to be coming onto a podcast where you're? it's not like ask the expert? It's, let's talk to Donna, the ADHDer.
2: Yeah, it's a little bit nerve wracking, you know, mm-hmm. it's it, to do, you know, something more personal, but um, I ask people to tell me their personal stuff all day, every day. So turnabout mm-hmm. is fair play, I guess. Um, and I think one of the reasons, I'm drawn to, you know, studying and working with and writing about and talking about autistic people, because what resonates with me is I was misunderstood for so many years. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 58 years old, and so I had no hope of being diagnosed as an ADHD or when I was a kid. As also, you know, a girl who you know found school to be relatively easy. I mm-hmm. messed up a lot, didn't get the best mm-hmm. grades and all that, but it wasn't super effortful for me. And uh, so I had no hope of being identified. I got identified mm-hmm. and diagnosed when I was in my I think mid to late 30s. And so I understand to some extent, at least what it's like to be misunderstood and then to internalize all the shame and blame and to, you know, blame yourself and be really hard on yourself. Mm -hmm. And then to have that experience of somebody seeing you and saying, actually, this is what's been going on and how Mm -hmm. unbelievably life-changing that can be. Yeah.
1: So, so liberating, so liberating. And this, this is something I think Patrick and I have talked about. Some, but I'd be curious what some of your internalized labels were. I think different and both shame-based, but I think some of my most like just aggressively negative labels I've put on myself is actually more for my ADHD than my autism. Um do you feel comfortable sharing what were some of the internalized narratives that came online for you having been undiagnosed mm-hmm. till sure?
2: Definitely when I was younger, like in high school and college, lazy. Um, I knew I was smart. I knew I was capable of, you know, advancing in my academic career. And yet, you know, I avoided hard work. I couldn't sustain attention or effort sometimes. And so definitely I thought of myself as lazy. And now I realize I'm absolutely anything but lazy. Right. When you (laughs) literally just came out with two books this summer. (laughs) Yeah. So that's been, that's been a big change, but that was, you know, the first half of my life. I definitely thought of myself as lazy. One that I'm still really struggling with is sensitive. I grew up Mm. with people constantly saying, you're so sensitive. You're mm. so sensitive in in a negative way, mm-hmm. and I definitely internalized that as mm. as something incredibly negative. And mm-hmm. now, I definitely still struggle with it. And there are many times mm-hmm. I wish I was less sensitive. And I get mad at myself for having such big emotional reactions.
1: Yeah, but at least yeah. I
2: understand it's not a characterological problem. This is my wiring, yeah. and that gives me a fighting chance of of not you know blaming myself at the end yeah. of the day.
1: I love how you word that. Not a characterological; it's my wiring. Um, okay, so this is going to kind of trail us somewhere. One, and maybe this—I'm curious what you mean by sensitivity, because I know like emotional regulation is harder. One more ADHDers, but also I'm thinking about like HSP, highly sensitive person kind of phenotype. Something I see a lot in the autistic community right now are folks thing. And I still, I used to say this too. folks saying HSP is just a repackaging of autistic traits. Um, I've backed off that because I'm now seeing, and like one of my kids is an ADHD or who also would be considered HSP. Um, I'm curious, like, does the HSP, um, that highly sensitive person does, is that part of what you meant by sensitive? Does that fit your experience?
2: Um, I know I read that book so long ago. It's hard to, for me to remember. Yeah, it's. I, I could say I I'll, I'll sort of make a di- differentiation. I think my sensitivity, a lot of it, I would say most of it, is about me feeling judged or criticized easily. Okay. So like it's rejection that, that...
1: sensitivity, emotion regulation yes. sensitivity. Okay. Yes, cool. exactly. No, that's it's was... Very
2: specific to that as opposed to okay. a more general, like I just finished a parent interview this morning about their daughter who, you know, I, I don't know yet, but I suspect she's autistic and my gosh, this poor girl is hypersensitive to everything, just mm-hmm. everything, throwing out a used crayon. She feels really badly for the crayon, butt. like, it, you know, it's so generalized her sensitivity yeah. and, and, you know, sensory stuff and all of that. I don't experience that level of very generalized sensitivity. For me, it's that okay. specific sort of RSD kind of thing. Oh,
1: I, lo- I love how you could put words around this stuff. Okay. So sensory, that's a big overlap. Is mm-hmm. that um but I like how again you're like, I and I I feel like in other conversations I've had with you, it's the globalness of some of the things that distinguish um like autism from ADHD. But what yeah,
2: what is your kind of sensory
1: experience of the world?
2: Yeah, so I think my perspective is that ADHDers and autistic people want area of overlap with sensory stuff is hyper-responsivity to, you know, all kinds of things, you know, noises, lights, whatever. Um, and I have a little bit of that. It's just a little though. It doesn't majorly affect mm-hmm. my life. I put on clothes that feel comfortable to me, that <laughs> they may or may not look great, but comfort is the, the most important thing. If I have mm-hmm. to wear something uncomfortable though, it's not the hugest deal in the world. So I would call it a minor hypersensitivity. Mm-hmm. Um, so as opposed to one of, well, I won't get into that story, never mind. I think that that sort of hyperresponsivity is pretty typical in a lot of ADHDers. What I don't see a lot in ADHDers, but I see more in autistic people, is hyporesponsivity being mm-hmm. less responsive to internal or external sensations. And I don't see a lot of atypical sensory craving, Some, sometimes sensation seeking, mm-hmm. if you have hyperactivity, impulsivity, mm-hmm. but not atypical sensory craving, like licking objects or smelling objects. That's just not typical.
1: I love that. Okay. So, and this is more a question for clinical Dr. Henderson. I've often thought hyporesponsivity and sensory seeking kind of went together. Like if someone was hypo then they might be sensory seeking because they're looking for that additional input. But
2: am I kind of conflating ideas there? I mean, I think they can go together, but I think of them as separate, okay. separate things, okay. you know, uh, you know and, and when I think of hyporesponsivity, I think of um, interoception more than any other sensory system, really. and like not mm-hmm. perceiving, or contextualizing, or understanding, or responding to your internal sensations mm-hmm. as much.
1: So like with interoception, you would you have pretty accurate understanding of what's happening inside
2: your body. Me, mm-hmm. I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, it's never when I've learned about it, I it never resonated yeah. with me. Of like, oh my god, that explains it. Now, my yeah. son, who is autistic, he's twenty two years old he has really 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 low interoceptive awareness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he just and and it's so important i think for clinicians and well for everybody to understand this because i think people call it denial if they don't understand the physiological basis absolutely yeah and i remember once he was in therapy with someone for he has a really bad needle phobia and this mm-hmm. became A crisis when he needed the COVID vaccine, of course. Mm -hmm. And so he was um, in in therapy for that. And she was doing hierarchy and she had him watch a video of somebody getting a shot. Mm -hmm. And he literally like scooted his chair back. He gasped, he put his hand to his mouth and she stopped the video and said, so you're feeling anxious. And he said, no, I'm not. And I think Mm -hmm. a therapist could mistakenly call that denial, which is a psychological Mm -hmm. defense mechanism, but Mm -hmm. no, he genuinely did not realize he was anxious and that's really global for him.
1: Yeah. 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 I have so many thoughts, but Patrick, I've been, I've been hogging the conversation. So
0: (laughs) You can continue to hog it. Um, I'm lost in my own head. So just paying attention (laughs) and listening.
1: Patrick, uh, Flew yesterday. He traveled yesterday. Oh,
0: um, yeah! Had a five a.m. flight out of California. Got back oh to goodness. East Coast at seven thirty p.m. So my brain is oh, not I, online. I,
2: I feel you, <laughs> and I love, you, that and I love, love it. I know I was just gonna say that, and you know what? That's something that has evolved for me as an ADHDer. I used to try to hide it a lot more, mm. and now I'll I'll say things like that. You know, whether or not I have a good excuse, like you do. I'm more willing to say in conversations, you know what? I just completely blanked out for no good reason. I actually really want to hear what you just said. Can you tell me again? Yeah. And it's sort of freeing to be able to do that and not Mm -hmm. to constantly feel like I have to pretend I'm paying attention perfectly well all the time.
0: Mm -hmm. Megan and I just released our episode Mm -hmm. on masking and that is Mm -hmm. just kind of the definition for me in regards to Mm -hmm. communicating how I'm experiencing conversation or social interaction is just to be like, I'm not really able to to follow this or pay attention to this right now. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Like mm-hmm. I'm here, but I'm not here. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I think that's a beautiful example of ADHD and masking to be able to own oh, like, I'm sorry, my my brain's faced off. I do care about you. Well, and I've been getting more and more requests for resources for ADHD couples. There's some great book, you know, Kate McNulty has a great book for autistic partners, but I've yet to find like a really good book for adhd partnerships and i think this sort of thing happens a lot where the adhd partner we get distracted or we misplace something significant like keys um and the other partner experiences it as us not caring yes um and yes so that i love how you model that ability to be able to say, whether it's to your spouse or to someone else, like, actually, I do care about you. My my brain just, you know, yeah. went offline right. for a minute.
2: Right. But it's hard because, you know, it takes a lot of self-awareness on everybody's mm-hmm. part and then it takes mm-hmm. communication on everybody's part. So mm-hmm. here's an example. I listen late. So when somebody starts talking to me, it takes me a few seconds to realize, mm-hmm. oh, this person was talking to me and I missed the first <laughs> sentence. Right. And Uh so my husband will walk into my, you know, I'm, I'm in my home office now. He'll frequently just walk in and start talking while I'm writing. And then by Mm -hmm. the time I realize he's talking, I've missed, you know, the, the important first sentence or two. And so I've had to, and then he gets upset, like, Hey, how come you don't listen to me? Mm -hmm. And so I've had to explain what I, Mm. here's what I need. I need you to walk in, say my name and wait for me to look up. Yeah. Then problem solved. Right.
1: I, I love that. Cause that's, I feel like that's like advice you give ADHD parents, like get their name, get some sort of like visual cue. Um, that's, that's been so helpful in my family since discovering, you know, the majority of us are neurodivergent is task switching language. Like, so if a child now comes up to me, cause that used to happen a lot with children, I'd be hyper-focused. Um, and I'll now say like, um, I need three minutes to task switch out of this and then I'll be able to help you. And to be able to just have that language of like, "Mm, give me a minute to task switch, then I can actually take in your words. Right. But yeah, I think that was actually one of our questions we wanted to ask you was around like task switching, hyper focus. Um,
2: Sounds like you're... Oh God, switching is, it's like my nemesis. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, sometimes I switch too easily, right? I'm writing Hmm. a report, I'm into it and I'll randomly think I should check my email and then I do <laughs> and yeah. I I realize that that's not I, I'm trying not to judge myself too much for that because as Johan Hari says in his amazing book on attention you know there are 10,000 engineers on the other side of your screen that are doing that to you right there are mm. forces that have nothing to do with my ADHD that are pulling my attention in this culture mm. that we're now living in um mm. But yeah, sometimes I switch too easily and then other times I can't switch when I want to switch. Mm-hmm. So, I wish I just had more control over my switching and as a hyperactive type ADHDer, I need a lot okay. of stimulation. So I tend mm-hmm. to jump from one task to another, which is not good, you know, it <laughs> makes you make mistakes and makes you be less efficient uh-huh. and is sort of tiring. So uh, mm-hmm. what, what's a girl to do when she needs a lot of stimulation, but she can't switch, right? <laughs>
1: I I call it my tree branch projects where I will like, I'll, I'll switch to something because it might be like, I'll check my email, but then it like will turn into this huge project and like, I'll be five steps over on a project. like, how did I get on this? Like, why am I making a new landing page with a new, like, why? And it's like, <laughs> oh, because I checked my email and that led to this, which led to this, which I think I've found ways to structure my life where I have space for tree branch projects, which is, I've noticed that reduces my executive like stress a lot just by having bandwidth to be able to chase those. Um, but it is really stressful. And it's like, I just want to get this thing done. But I mean, five steps over here. Yeah.
2: Working. But what I'm hearing is that you're, you sort of changed the narrative about it and so it's not necessarily a bad thing when you go off and do a, a new project it's
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's a branch of the tree you know yep. and, and every branch has its own place right yep. so just thinking about it differently can be helpful yeah yeah, yeah and I, I think, think more, can, yeah okay oh,
0: sorry I think you can get into the narrative you know especially for a lot of ADHDers of like those quote-unquote tree branch projects that Megan's referencing as like I can't finish anything. I can't follow mm-hmm. through with anything. Every time I start something, I diverge somewhere else. And that makes me really frustrated with myself. So just the ability to to reframe that and think about it differently, I think, like you're saying, Dawn, is super helpful.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm
1: really and great at is,
2: starting things. <laughs>
1: this is where I think my, my autism really helps my ADHD is I typically do finish projects. And there's a lot of unfinished projects, but I typically do because the stress of how like the completionist in me the stress of it having it incomplete is too stressful and i've i've often wondered like how do how do y'all do it how do ADHDers who don't have the support of autism like <laughs> do it so yeah like finishing tasks is that how how do you navigate that
2: um so when i'm doing something for other people it's super helpful like when other people are counting on me to get something done. And is the RSD like helping with that then? For sure. For okay. sure. <laughs> and and I think that's just part of my my nature and uh-huh. you know what what's important to me. Um honestly, I get a lot of help. My husband has amazing executive functioning. I have terrible executive functioning. And so he makes a lot of decisions. He does most mm-hmm. of our planning and, and it works out really, really well for us. And I'm lucky. I didn't, we didn't know this about each other when we got married, but it's worked out well. And at work, I used to try to manage my own schedule and I was a disaster. I made constant mistakes. I would triple check something and mm-hmm. still get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just remembered, you know, Bill Bill Sticktrude is, he he Mm -hmm. wrote some great books. He's my mentor. And I once showed up at his house on a night when there was no meeting, no plan for me to be there. (laughs) I literally walked in like, hey, (laughs) and he and his wife looked at me like, what are you doing here? (laughs) I mean, that's how calendar challenged I am. And so I finally accepted that. And so at work, I now have somebody who manages my schedule mm-hmm. and it takes all of the decision making and planning off my mm-hmm. plate. And I, I listened to your PDA episode and I heard you say, you know, talk about you needing control over your schedule. Mm-hmm. That's the exact opposite of what mm-hmm. I need. Mean. I love it when somebody else decides what my schedule will look like, and then they just—I wake up in the morning and they hand it to me, and huh. I follow uh-huh. it. Yeah, I—you know—I there... wonder if
0: that's. Oh, sorry. Both so interested in this. I, I was
1: just—I'm curious if that's one of those subtle differences between ADHD and autism. Again, there'll, there'll be diversity, but like, yeah, my autistic daughter—it's like, like, what is the schedule? Let's make it together. Like, there's got to be agency in creating the schedule. My ADHD is like. Stop giving me decisions. Like, just give me breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> like, just tell me what to wear. Just tell me what we're going to do today. Um, so that's a, I hadn't thought about that before, but then like how we feel about our schedule and who's in control of it.
2: Yeah. I, I it, it would be subtle. An- It would be an interesting thing to think about. We'd have to sort out the non-PDA autistics from the PDA autistics, of course. And then so many autistic people also have ADHD. So it could be messy, but it's an interesting thing to think about, you know? And and for me, you know, the important thing is knowing that about yourself and trying to set up your life to accommodate that and not Mm -hmm. judging yourself. Like I Mm -hmm. used to get really frustrated with myself for being so bad at planning and scheduling and all that. And now it's another one of those things I can own and say, yeah, I'm terrible at that. And that's okay. I'm going to get help, you know? And that that's what I think be my love. question. Oh, go ahead.
0: Sorry, Megan and I are going to do this a lot today. <laughs> there's, that was going to be my question that you just answered, Donna was like, was there shame and guilt and frustration and um, building up when and initially it was like, why can't I do this? Why is this, why is this so challenging for me?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I just kept thinking, Donna, come on, concentrate, concentrate. Mm-hmm. You can just stop, you know, stop being so distracted and get so mad at myself. And obviously it's embarrassing too, you know, while walking into somebody's house sure. and just, the, you know, the million and one times I just screwed up my schedule. Um, and now I just, I, I have to laugh at myself and I have to be okay. Dina Gassner said something really, really smart, wise, wise to me once. Dina is a, an autistic researcher. And, um, she wrote one of the forewords for one of my books and she said, the goal for any of us isn't independence, it's interdependence. It's understanding all the ways that you do and inevitably will depend on other people and that's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I
1: love that. I love that. Yeah. There's, especially in psychology, there's a lot of focus on. The individual. And even um, I'm writing a book right now, self-care for autistic people, which is kind of funny because I have a weird relationship to the term self-care. Because I feel like so much pop psychology is self-care, but without that interpersonal relational lens, that like we are interdependent. Like we we have always been. majority gives us the illusion we're not, but we do best when we're
2: actually supporting kind of interdependence. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you're writing that book. I knew you were working on something. I didn't know mm-hmm. it was that and um I'm I'm tired of all the self care advice being exercise more, eat right, mm-hmm. get enough mm-hmm. sleep. Like of course those things are important. <laughs> of course they are, but you know there there's so much more to it than that and those things mm-hmm. are so hard for so many people, right?
1: Yeah. Both both ADHDers and autistic people, yeah. right? Like if you think about the executive functioning that goes into any of those tasks you just
2: listed. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've I've um I'm gonna try to think about how to say this without outing somebody. So I have a challenging relationship with someone in my life who is not an immediate family member. Um, and that person says hurtful things to me. Mm-hmm. And for years I have then immediately, without thinking about it, reacted and said things Mm -hmm. that I regret. Mm -hmm. um, Because I don't want to be hurtful or disrespectful. And also because it just feels crappy when you (laughs) lose it a little bit and say things you regret. And I've been working on paying attention to what's happening in my body Mm -hmm. when that person says hurtful things. And so you know, recently that person said something hurtful and I was able to just notice, oh, my Mm. heart rate just escalated. Wow, I feel this like, Mm. I hear sort of a whooshing sound in my ears. My muscles just tensed and I feel like I'm preparing for a fight. And I was aware Mm. of my body. And because I could do that, it allowed me the three seconds of grace I needed Mm. to not just say something, Mm-hmm. but to respond in a in a way that I was proud of. And to me, that's sort of the beginning of self-care to be able to notice what the heck is happening with your own body, right? Oh, I
1: love that. I love how you connected that, like having that internal narrator of like I'm naming and narrating. And it's like, I sometimes call that self-attunement because we're attuning to ourselves. I love thinking about that as the basis of self-care. Um, can I steal that from my book? Please. I love that idea so much.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I'm sure I'm not the first person who, who made that connection, but when I mm. think about self-care, yeah, the, I love that phrase. That's the first yeah. step is you have to be attuned to what's going on with yourself, you know, mm. Mm. before you can do anything else. You have to know you're tired before you try to get some sleep. Yeah. You have to know you're hungry yeah. before you try to put some food in your body. It's pretty basic.
1: Which gets back to that entire assumption: if 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 it's not basic, it's, right. then nothing about self care is basic. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. True. Yeah. Huh. Can can I um, do, I don't know why I'm asking permission to diverge for all 80 <laughs> <ladies. laughs> I know. Right? I'm very cognizant of like I feel like I'm talking a lot. Um, but there is there is one piece I want to make sure and get on our conversation today, and this is a conversation I don't know if you remember us having it. It was probably one of the first or second times you and I had met and it was about, so there's this term context blindness. I don't like the term myself. I prefer, like I'll talk about high context communication or that gets into anthropology, which is confusing. Um, need for high context communication, Mm
0: -hmm. but there's
1: a conversation where I asked, like I was saying how, you know, someone asked me like, what's my favorite book? i really struggle with this. Do you remember this conversation? No, I don't. Um, Okay. So I asked you and I was saying how like, I I would struggle with that because I'd be thinking, well, what bucket are we talking about? Are we talking uh, about psychology buckets or about fantasy books? Like how do I possibly pick one favorite book? What's the context? Yeah. And what you said, you were like, well, for me, if my neighbor was asking it, I would like this book would pop in my head. Whereas if I was at work, this book would pop in my head. And I, I remember asking you, like, you mean you're not analytically like sifting through all that. Right. And that was such an aha moment for me around, there's definitely something different for an ADHDer. Who's not also autistic around intuitively, I guess, picking up context cues would be the way to say that.
2: So my, my friend Amara Brooke, Dr. Amara Brooke, who's a yeah, psychologist, do, do you know, yeah, she calls it, <clears throat> well, she once in a conversation with me called it context independence. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I like I that term. It, right. It was too late. The book had already gone to press. So I couldn't stick it in the book, but yeah. it, I liked it. It's context independence, right? Yeah. Because um, it doesn't yeah. depend
1: on the context. I'm not going to change right. my authentic self based on the context.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so there's no right or wrong. There's, there's two different ways of, of sort of moving through the world and for non-autistic people for the most part, well, everybody has top-down and bottom-up processing, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm going to oversimplify, but for most non-autistic people, the top-down processing is prioritized. And so we take the context first Mm -hmm. and here's the key that happens for us subcortically, automatically within mm-hmm. milliseconds without our awareness it just and it's not
1: through the prefrontal it's cortex right correct it's, too, it's
2: subcortical yeah. right correct yeah. there's no awareness there's no effort the oh overwhelming majority of the time it just happens like magic <laughs> right <It's> so <laughs> and so but for most autistic people there's more of a bottom-up processing where you have to take in all the details and get all the details and sort of build up to the big picture from there.
1: Okay.
2: And again, not better or worse, but there are different advantages and disadvantages to each style. And the a huge, huge disadvantage to the context, independent style, the autistic style is the time and energy and effort that it takes okay. to move through all of that information when you're under pressure to respond to somebody, Mm -hmm. right? And so often I get, you know, referrals for kids or adolescents or adults where everybody's saying, we think they have slow processing speed, but on testing, Mm -hmm. their processing speed is just fine because testing does not require Mm contacts. So it's working tempo, it's conversational tempo that you might need extra time to build up, to figure out the context. Hmm. Does that make sense?
1: Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, I say something similar that often autistic people are deep processors, not slow processors. Yeah. Like we're processing so much, so deeply that it takes more time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
2: for sure. For sure. Especially compared to, you know, a hyperactive, impulsive style ADHD mm-hmm. or like me, we tend to be fast and, you know. I don't always go as deep. I'm capable of going as deep, but as I move through my day, it's not my natural mm-hmm. way of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So you uh, know, in, in my first Venn diagram where I was putting autism and ADHD together, I put high context <laughs> communication in the middle. Cause I, I talk with a lot of ADHDers where it feels like they share a lot of context to get to what I think uh neurotypical people might call the point. Yeah. Do you like How would you categorize that in the top down, bottom down, or is that totally unrelated? And also, do you also observe that in ADHD or so aren't also autistic, kind of a high context way of sharing stories or diverging to the uh point?
2: In the people I've known who are most context independent, or in the traditional term, you know, have the most context blindness, I haven't noticed like it would be interesting for me to go back and look how many of them also had ADHD, mm-hmm. right? That I, I think I might do that because that would be very, very interesting. Um, and I've lost track of your question now. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I have no working memory. <laughs> um,
1: oh, I, like <laughs> if high context communication or like yeah, in, in telling a story, needing to share a lot of context, if that feels like an ADHD thing, or again, maybe no. played at autism, that doesn't feel like an ADHD. No, thing.
2: to me, that feels like if you don't intuitively have the context of what your listener already knows mm-hmm. and actually needs to know or wants to know, you're at risk of giving <laughs> too many details or yeah. too few details. Right? Yeah, and that yeah. happens sometimes too
1: all the time like i do this i hear this all the time i either am sharing not enough or too much like this like magical goldilocks of just enough information yeah.
2: <laughs> and to me as a non-autistic adhder that's that's very intuitive like how much okay okay how much detail to give someone in any given moment and i'm not mm-hmm. saying i you know get it right 100% at the time obviously but for the most part, it's pretty intuitive and easy for me to know that. And I've never had like a complaint about that.
1: That's fascinating. I always, I didn't think that was kind of an ADHD thing to like, share long winded, verbose stories that diverge all over the place. Um, But that's really, that's really interesting to hear you say that.
2: Yeah, I think ADHDers, you know, sometimes we maybe talk a lot or can be interrupty or maybe go a little bit off topic, but that, to, but to have a pattern of providing mm-hmm. too much what we would call irrelevant detail, because mm-hmm. that's really what you're mm-hmm. talking about. I don't personally see that as an ADHD thing. It's not for me. It's not something I've noticed in yeah. my clients. Yeah. Sometimes
0: I wonder if that being an autistic trait if it's also because you're trying so hard to read the other person's body language and facial expressions of how are they reacting to said information. And if I'm not getting the reaction that I think I should be getting, then I'm offering more and more and more information. And -hmm. then I get lost in that uh, explanation. And then I'm like, did that even make sense? And the person's like, no, it actually (laughs) didn't track that at all. My wife will look at me and be like, why are you telling me all of this? I'm like, I was... (laughs) I was just trying to figure out where the reaction was to what I was saying. And then ultimately, I get lost in that.
2: And would it like feel natural for you or not to just like what I would do in that moment is say, I can't, I can't read your reaction, or I'm not sure if you want to hear more about this, like I would check in with the person verbally
0: no, I don't think I I don't think that comes to mind immediately for me when I'm in conversation like that. I think it's just like, oh, I get this anxious process that comes over me where I'm like, oh my God, I I I don't know where to go from here. And now I feel trapped in this conversation.
2: And I wonder if that's, you know, partially just non-autistic conversations not being intuitive for you and partially just having had bad experiences with conversations in the past, then they bring on that anxiety and Like, so I don't happen to have either of those um, differences. And so for me, if I'm in a conversation and I feel like, wait, we're having a disconnect. The most natural thing is to be like, hey, I think we might be having a disconnect. What's going on? Uh Like, what do you want? Do you want me to talk more or less? What's happening?
0: Saved me a lot of time. And- yeah.
1: <laughs> and I, I do that too, Donna. And I think I've, I've trained myself. Like I've developed a hyper vigilance and I think this is part of autistic ADHD masking, a hyper vigilance to other people's. So all for me, like gaining psychological safety in conversation is knowing what's happening. So I'll do a lot of like, okay, what's happening here? Um, the only therapist that I've actually worked well with was someone who was willing to do interpersonal work with me because that I don't feel psychologically safe in a conversation unless I can check in with the other person and get an honest answer about what they're experiencing in that moment.
2: Yeah. I that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think I've heard similar, you know, experiences from quite a lot of autistic mm-hmm. people, late diagnosed autistic people in particular. Yeah. 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 Okay. Small talk. Just
1: like, I've heard you talk about breadcrumbs. You pick them up. You like, do you like small talk? Do you tolerate small talk? Like I, I know you're good at it.
2: So I have to tell you this story. Um, so I have a colleague who is autistic and, um, his name is Eric and we've worked together for over a decade and we work very well together and, I walked into his office one morning, I was in a big hurry and I said, hey, the client you're seeing today, buh, 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 buh. And then I caught myself and said, I'm sorry, that was so rude of me, how was your weekend? And he laughed and he was like, seriously, I do not need you to ask me about my weekend. I do that for you guys, meaning all of us (laughs) non-autistic colleagues. And I'm good if we never, ever do that again. And, and to be clear, like, I, I think Eric and I like, really like each other and work very, very well together. <clears throat> but he's like, I feel no need to get into any of those social niceties. So that was probably two, maybe three years ago. I cannot tell you how hard it is for me to like, engage my free, prefrontal lobe and stop my natural way of interacting when I mm-hmm. see him and not say, hey, what's new? How's your daughter? What's going on? You're taking a vacation this summer. Whoa. So for it's you, so you're hard. putting
1: on a break to yes. not do that. Like for yes. me, and I think for Patrick, it's mm-hmm. like forcing myself. It's like, I have to hit the gas to yes. get myself to ask those damn questions that I really don't like. But for you, it's like, it's like putting on a break. It's pulling something back.
2: It That's exactly right. And I feel like oh, it gives wow. me this tiny little window into what it must be like to be autistic and Mm -hmm. to have to be like very aware in the moment of, this is what my urge is to do in this situation, but this is what I must do if I want this situation to be comfortable for the other person. It's hard. And And I only have one person I have to (laughs) do that with.
1: That's such a great example of the double empathy problem of like this two-way street of like, it's just a different cultural reference of how we're communicating. I had never thought about small talk that way as like hard to hold it back. I have a lot more empathy all of a sudden for people.
2: Well, but most of us don't hold it back. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's just sort of a natural, like if I see one of my neighbors, I'm like, I will cross the street in order to just make small talk for five or 10 minutes. Because for me, that's very, <laughs> Patrick's laughing. I have the image right street. now of my
0: neighbor trying to do that to me the other day and me pretending <laughs> not to hear them and like getting in my car and like backing out of the driveway, looking at them in the <laughs> eye. Like...
1: I literally cross the road. I will like, if I see someone, I'm like, we're gonna cross. i will cross the road, but I'll do it soon enough. So it does not look like I'm doing it to avoid them. Yeah. But I will cross the road to avoid, <laughs> even to avoid eye contact. Yeah. Yeah. Like just to avoid like any sensory experience of interacting
2: with another human body. (laughs) All right. So I know you're supposed to be asking me questions, but may I ask you guys a question about this? Yeah, absolutely. So if I, so with my son and he wouldn't mind me saying this, you know, as a non-autistic person, one of the ways I feel connected with other people is by connecting verbally, by talking. Mm -hmm. And it's not always deep and important. A lot of times it's, so what you doing tonight? How was your day? Mm -hmm. Kind of stuff, which is like the absolute last thing in the world he ever wants to do. And so the only way I've ever, figured out of really connecting with him is to sort of go entirely to where he is Mm -hmm. he loves military history so like to go to a battlefield with him to go to a battle reenactment Mm -hmm. with him which is like my idea of hell but (laughs) I do it because like that's but I don't know like how to bridge the gap so it's Mm -hmm. not you know one way or the other way but that we can build some connection
1: yeah you know what I mean absolutely absolutely first of all i just i love that as a parent you're doing that you're entering into their their i call special interests like our ecosystems that you're entering into his ecosystem because you're right we like Patrick and i have talked about this a lot of that's how you if you want to get access to the inner world of an autistic person like entering through special interests um and i think that's a lot of parents who are trying to figure out how to connect with their autistic kids i think that's often what they're doing yeah um and that, but yeah, it'd be nice for you not to have to go to like a historical event to connect with your son. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think talking about it, like I don't, and I don't know if there's a way of like talking about it without doing it. But that's often how, even if it's, if it's just to warm up the conversation, right? Yeah. Because the questions are like, "What are you doing tonight?" Like to me, that would be a sensory demand. But hmm. if the conversation's been warmed up through a special interest. And then we, if it's, if we're able to then link to other things, um, that, yeah, I think about it as a warm up. And again, from a nervous system lens of like, if it's just a question that's invoking a di- response, that's a demand. Mm-hmm. My nervous system isn't warmed up for social interaction. Mm-hmm. But if it's been kind of melted and warmed through talking about something of interest and then diverging to something that might feel more connecting for both of you that's that's one approach i take i don't know patrick do you have thoughts on that
0: that. yeah i think that for for people who in my life where i don't necessarily have um safety or i can be my true self around them then that small talk that demand um is i'm gonna shoot it down pretty quickly but Mm -hmm. and that's probably where i would really appreciate you know moving into the conversation through even a a subset of the special interest or just something in general that felt much more, uh, interest focused. But for people who I have regular contact with, like several of my best friends, my wife, et cetera, like there's definitely small talk that goes on just because the relationship feels safe. And I also understand that that's what they need in a lot of ways in order to, to have some sort of reciprocity in the relationship. So I'm not like freely giving it out. I'm not going out of my way to have it, but I'm certainly much more, um, amenable to that. If my mom was to call me right now and like say, Hey, how was your weekend? How was your birthday? I'd be like, it was fine. Like it was fine. (laughs) But it's just a very different relationship for me. So I do think it matters uh, for me specifically on the relationship, on the context of the relationship too. And, and the safety that has already been established in terms of just communication. And, and I think it's complicated. Like there are definitely times where my wife is asking me questions and I'm like, I, I, I don't want to have like the small talk conversation with you right now. And, and I'll, I will be able to name that. Megan's been able to name that with me before when I said, Hey, Megan, how was your day? And she's like, <laughs> um, stop asking me that. <laughs> so I, I think it's about being able to also ask for what you need in that moment. Like, Hey, stop asking me that. Cause that's not helpful here. This isn't, this isn't where you have to interact that way. That's really helpful for me.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And for me as a non-autistic person, it, it's also, I'm working on not thinking of there being a right way and a wrong way to interact. And it's really mm-hmm. hard for me. It's yeah. really mm-hmm. hard. Yeah,
1: sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hard to not think there's a right and a wrong way.
2: Yeah. I think my way is the right way. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> no. So. And don't we all as, as humans too? Sure. Like. Sure. Yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm like looking at the clock and now I'm feeling pressure of like, we should have some profound ending. I should have some profound question. Like what is your favorite part about being an ADHD or what is the hardest part? Um, I don't, I don't know. If,
2: well, if I'm, I, I want to bring that pressure or not,
1: but uh, no, yeah, go ahead.
2: No, there's no pressure. Cause we're just going to do our awkward goodbye in a minute and it'll be <laughs> fun, but I, w- I want to bring up one Thing that i wonder about as a difference um and obviously everybody's an individual but working memory i think about i've met so many mm-hmm. autistic people who don't have adhd who have absolutely phenomenal working memory like yes nominal working memory yes and i as an adhd or have like absolutely terrible mm-hmm. terrible mm-hmm. working memory And, Mm -hmm. um, for, for those of your listeners who aren't super familiar, it's, I tell kids, it's the blackboard in your brain where you can write something down Mm -hmm. while you're working on it. And I write in disappearing ink on my blackboard. Same. And, you know, one thing I've noticed just with family members who have great working memories, they think a lot about the past and the future. And I am Mm -hmm. almost incapable of thinking about the past Mm -hmm. and the future. Mm -hmm. I just am very much in the moment. And that leads to my difficulty with planning and it's, it's good and bad, right? They are so much better than I am at planning because they can hold mm-hmm. the future in their brains mm-hmm. and, you know, think of different scenarios and choose the best scenario, which is very hard for me to do. But they also obsess a lot about the past yeah. and the future, which I don't tend mm-hmm. to do. So mm-hmm. I don't, it's just something I've thought about as a difference.
1: That's And that like, and I don't love this. I think in in general, we're going to find ways of moving away from ableist language, but time blindness is how like, that's often referred about just the here and the now. And I love how you both see the, like what it gives you, but also what it takes from you. Right. There is less of that obsessive. I think I've noticed that too. I, I had it connected the obsessive tendency toward, you're right, that, that lack of um lack of time blindness but like that ability to perceive the future in the past definitely leaves us vulnerable yeah somehow i managed to have both i both struggle with time perception and my working memory is terrible but i also do think a lot about the future in the past well maybe my theory is wrong then (laughs) well i mean maybe it's part of being an autistic ADHD, or maybe there's yeah yeah do you do both patrick
0: I obsess about the past and the future constantly and I'm a really good planner. I mean, I'm planning entire events and retreats and um, things that uh, feel very natural to me. I really struggle moment to moment working memory where I will forget what I'm doing during the day all the time. I'll forget like why I went down to the kitchen for something. I will forget (laughs) like the three things that are in my mind that if I don't write them down immediately or respond to immediately, they'll be gone. But Everything else is constantly obsessing and thinking about and analyzing and processing all the different alternative outcomes. So quite exhausting.
2: Oh, yeah. That's as, my experience too, what you just an, described. And as a non-autistic ADHD or like everything, you just, I can't relate to that, that constantly <laughs> like planning and obsessing and running scenarios through your, I'm like, oh God, make it stop. Like, I just don't do that, which is, it's it's a blessing and a curse, right?
0: For sure. And there, you know, Mm -hmm. I've said it very often that I wish I could just turn it all off. Like, I wish Mm you could just stop it. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, that's, that's definitely, it's, it's exhausting.
2: It sounds exhausting.
0: End on that really (laughs) negative note. or All right.
2: I'll I'll give you, I'll give you a quick positive. I don't want to end on a negative. Do I have time to do a quick positive so we don't end on, so I, um, I tried stimulant medication a little bit over the past year, which I haven't really done in in the past. Um, And it really worked well for me in that it took away the urge to constantly move. I was able to sit still. Hmm. I was able to get so much work done. Mm -hmm. But then I inevitably ended up with like a headache or my neck Mm -hmm. would be stiff or my back would hurt. And I finally realized and I changed my internal narrative my body is helping me out by wanting to move all the oh, time. That's what yeah. my body needs. And t- I just need huh. to lean into that and not try to fight who I am mm. and my wiring. I love that. I love that. I love really? thinking through like the,
1: yeah, the ways your, your body and these things we call symptoms are actually working for you and helping you out and telling you what you need.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun and I wish that, I'm surprised like the hour went like that. Yeah. And uh, it was really, really great to have this conversation. I feel like we could have continuations of this for sure and, and go down so many different like uh, areas and different perspectives. So thank you so much for coming on and just sharing some of your story too.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I agree. It went quickly and it was a lot of fun.
0: Megan, you got anything before I awkwardly sign us off? <laughs> this
2: is the part I get really awkward
1: at. I, don't, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you came on, Donna. Like this has been like so fun to have this kind of hybrid clinical personal conversation. Um, and thank you for your vulnerability. Of just, I know it is different to bring our lived experience to the conversation, especially as clinical psychologists. It's we're kind of taught not to do that. So thank you for being willing to do that.
0: Totally. So. For everyone listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast, new episodes are out every single Friday on all major platforms and YouTube. You can like, download, subscribe, and share. And Donna just made me realize while I was saying that we didn't give you any opportunity to share where they can find more of your work too. So please feel free oh, to okay. share that as well and we'll put it in the show notes.
2: <laughs> that would never have occurred to me actually. I'm the worst with that. Um, my website is drdonnahenderson.com. drdonnahenderson.com. And the website for the books is Is This Autism?
0: perfect all of that will be in the show notes so everyone has easy access as well and now i don't know what else to say so (laughs) bye (laughs) and now pause for a word from our sponsors From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.